Welcome to 2LO Rebooted, where we tell the stories of BBC design and engineering. I'm Bill Thompson. This is the third in our series of programmes from BBC Research and Development, exploring fundamental issues around the design of digital services and how we measure their impact. The programmes were recorded during the pandemic when travel and sharing studios wasn't possible in the UK, so the recording quality is occasionally variable. Hi, and welcome to the BBC R&D Human Values podcast series with me, Ian Forrester, and my colleague, Leanne Curlin. Over these five episodes, we're looking at the human values work we're doing inside BBC R&D and exploring how our practice applies in measurement, applications and a post-COVID world. So far, we have outlined the human values framework and considered how it might be applied. In this episode, we go deeper into the underlying philosophy with our guests, Katja Bago, Pauline Drescher, Yancy Strickler, Alexandra Deschamps-Sansino, David Jay and Mark Sermon. Katja is from Nesta, where she leads their work on the Next Generation Internet Project for the European Commission. Pauline is from the Netherlands Film Festival and is a member of the steering group of publicspaces.net. Yancy is an author, entrepreneur, co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, while Alex runs Design Swarm and is a leading ethical thinker in the design space. Lastly, we have David, who leads mobilisation efforts at the Centre for Humane Technology, and Mark, the Executive Director of the Mozilla Foundation. Our discussion began with an enthusiastic Ian describing why he thinks the philosophical underpinnings matter. I think it's really interesting because human values work does edge into some of these wider philosophical discussions. I do find that especially when you get into this area because it's, it's almost like you see as an alternative to some of the metrics we already have and which we, which we will discuss in other podcasts i think there's something interesting that even though we interviewed these people the wider philosophical discussions were kind of surrounded everything that they talked about yeah i agree i think that everything came back to this idea that we're in this sort of society where capitalist nature and metrics driven decision making is driving everything and that really played out in all of the interviews we had because everybody came back to this notion that okay it's all well said and done thinking about new ways of measuring what value and success look like but it really doesn't matter when fundamentally you're just trying to make money and improve as an organisation, a company, an individual. I think everything comes back to this idea of using metrics to make decisions. And it's it, we see it on every level, like whether it's a design decision, whether it's a strategic decision, whether it's a company, all those sorts of things. David talks about this and the idea of the complexity and the nuances really needed to understand value and to understand the connection between people, their values and the technology. I think that we really need to understand people in more valued ways, which is what we've done, because then when you do, you can make these decisions based on what is good for people rather than what is good for a company making more money. And now let's hear from David Jay, Head of Mobilization at the Center for Humane Technology. There's an extent to which you go out, you talk to people, you use this, you use a, a, a wide range of um, tools to, to understand the lives of the people that you're building for, and then you just make, it, make the best decision you can. And it's not necessarily the decision the metrics point you at. Um, and so you need to equip yourself. It's not that you like, you just go with your gut or 
you know, whoever the boss is, you just do what they want. The entire team is equipping themselves with the information they need to understand the, the complex value they're creating. That includes understanding their own personal relationship with that value, understanding their colleagues' relationship with that value, talking to people and understanding their, their, their use, different kinds of users' relation with that value, reviewing qualitative research, reviewing quantitative research. Like it's, it's I think, in, in many ways, a harder process of gathering information, but you wind up with this much richer result of something that someone looks at and says, oh, this, I, I have a value in my life as a user and this product gets that and this product respects that value. This product isn't just trying to get my attention, to extract my engagement. In a capitalist society, the, the aim or the focus is not on the people, it's on uh, another value. And I think the human value starts to unpick that and so naturally starts to flow into this area which feels always like not anti-capitalist but it feels somewhere else i would say and i think that's i think that that's that's really interesting and i think the um a lot of the discussions that we had tend to flow in that area i think some of the some of our our guests did actually talk about post-capitalists and other type of analogies but there was a lot of talk about what what it could be and this could be somewhat of an enabler for that i think alex talked quite a lot about society and questioning why we're making things i found that in that conversation really interesting because she highlighted some really good questions such as do i need to produce as a designer do i need to produce or make or develop a new thing which I completely respect is really uncomfortable for a designer when your whole the whole lens in which you look at the world is making new things because that's your sort of bread and butter. But I do think that if we are in this world where it's mass production, mass consumerism, capitalism, we need to really think about doing things differently because we have bigger problems to solve as a society, bigger climate crisis and all the other things that are going on that really mean that we need to think of not purchasing things all the time as a consumer and not keep making things for people to purchase. I think that importance of thinking about solutions from like this non-technical, non-production of goods lens and then you go from what's the thing first, what's the solution first, to really thinking about people and thinking what as a designer do I want to enable people to to feel, to enable their values. So shifting mindsets around the role of design in society could play in the future. And now we hear from Alexandra Deschamps-Sansino, who's an author, consultant and entrepreneur with a strong design background. Yeah, I mean, my entire career has been... Uh, I think based on questioning what it was that I studied in the first place, I think that there, um, I was uncomfortable with the capitalist nature of it from day one. Of course, I've also made products. So I've made the goodnight lamp. I've shipped the goodnight lamp to people around the world. Um, But I do think that there's something there's something uncomfortable about being a professional in this sector now. There's something, and, and there's something that's going to continue to be uncomfortable. I think that the people making um, digital only services 
are already starting to question their own impact in terms of the carbon emissions of servers and all that kind of conversation. I don't think that designers have even really fundamentally started thinking about what their impact is and uh, their psychological impact on, you know, the job well done. The job well done when you've got a thing in your hands that's well packaged and shows up on a shelf in a supermarket feels real, right? It feels fulfilling to some cultures, as opposed to, of course, being happy in your life, connected to others, feeling part of a group. Those things are less tangible. They're much more meaningful and they're much more rewarding, but they don't feel like getting the job done. And I think that we, uh, as a a sector, we contribute to the false premise that getting the job done via a physical object is uh, societally more meaningful than some of the values that you've highlighted in this research. What you're also um, highlighting, which I think is one of the biggest challenges of the design sector in the land in, for the next foreseeable future, is uh, a degree of humility is required from designers as to their role in the world. Their uh, level of literacy in the research that you highlight is extremely high level of literacy around psychological needs and the ways in which societies work. And that's the world of psychology, the world of sociology, anthropology. These are social sciences that have been around since before there was design and before there was even advertising. And these are sectors that are not very well understood by designers generally. They're understood by user researchers because user researchers have come out of those sectors in order to then serve the design sector. But uh, they are not, the user researcher is often not the person deciding the thing to be built. And the thing to be built might not be needed at all if there was a social shift or a slight social change or a social interaction that was aided. Uh, But a designer has built their entire career self-worth and Um, worldview on being useful via the production of a physical mechanism, a building, etc. And that role will need to change dramatically. When, especially designers who, when they are thinking about a new product, new service, new whatever, that they're also thinking about these these really big problems you know these problems that are massive you know the environment is such a big one and you know you'd like to think that this would be kind of front and center in a lot of the decisions but i don't think it is and i think in the same way the value to people is it's kind of always like not really maybe it's kind of like a little bit of lip service you know oh maybe you know this will be valuable to a person but it kind of disappears i think through the process which is why it's so great to to focus on the human values right from the beginning and to work with it all the way through to the very end and to even evaluate at the very end to see if it actually is working to 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 provide that that value to the person I think this is these are this is why this this, this framework is so powerful. 
I think also developing empathy because I think there's this mindset that as a designer or a producer you're making things that have value like you said but to step aside and really question okay what do people really value and and what does that feel like what does that look like it's those sorts of things to really develop empathy because we are all humans and we all have very similar values So putting yourself in the shoes of who your audience might potentially be is one way of starting to develop empathy and starting to think about new ways of doing things. I think Alex also talks about this, that there needs to be some sort of educational shift. We need awareness, education first before any sort of change can happen. And then, like you say, it needs to come through all parts of the process, which is what we're doing with the human values. We are getting people to really think about their intention right at the start and then develop empathy, think about things in really ethical scenarios all the way through the process to then look right at the end to say, how did this map onto what I was intending to do? So mapping intention with measure. And back to Alex. I also think that there's a lot of... uh ethical thinking and um, concerns and conversations that have happened in the UK and in Europe around ethics in the last five, six years that could never have happened in other places in the world. And so the conversation that we think of as being a pretty easy conversation to have, the conversation that is reflected through the work of the BBC, um, R&D's work is also in line with this, we think this is kind of business as usual and I don't necessarily think it is. I think it's um, quite an advanced set of practices and thinking underpinned by things like the GDPR, underpinned by um, sense of social good and um, socialism that exists in communities that are near us uh, that don't exist elsewhere. And I also think that uh, is, reflected in how these values come about and how we even look at them. I think we're sitting in a bath of, uh, in a way, quite an advanced mindset uh, or quite a complex mindset around these issues that other people don't have the luxury of thinking about um, and uh, sometimes don't want to think about for a lot of different socioeconomic political reasons. One of the things I think is very interesting is is that educational uh, shift, and it's it's not an easy one, and it takes time. It takes you know, but the the idea behind the human values framework is to hopefully make that a little bit easier for people to to go. This is okay, you know. I I kind of get it. I'm I'm changing my viewpoint. I'm changing the the way that I see things. I also think that. This year, it might be the year that we'll start to listen and start to think about these things. I think education's really difficult in the sense that there needs to be some underlying motivation for somebody to go and educate themselves about something. So hopefully in having a framework, like you say, already there, it makes that a bit easier. But still, I think there needs to be some sort of call to action or something that motivates people to because to seek that information yourself there needs to be that that driving force behind that but do you think that in the same way as say for a long time people have have talked about the environment 
but because there hasn't been a clear way to to always measure the effects of the environment in some people's eyes it was always hard to do anything about it do your little bit but then how much of an effect does that have on the rest of the bigger environment now you can say everyone does their bit but to be able to clearly go this is a framework which then allows us to put a figure on the carbon emissions for example suddenly it becomes a lot more clearer and then the our education kind of kicks in we know we understand that the numbers going up is not good the number going down is a good is good do you think that this could be a part the missing part of a jigsaw almost we can only really hope so because we know that people rely on the thoughts that they've already had, the heuristics that they have and all those things, unless there's anything personally motivating. I do think that with the environment, one of the big things is that when it affects people being able to go on holiday, that's when people take notice because it's affecting their lives personally. So I do think that having a framework that looks at what value is from a personal perspective can only really help because anyone can put themselves into the shoes of these human values because they are very personal. You are listening to the Human Values Framework podcast series from the BBC. Largely age and gender are two sort of factors that we look at and I think a lot of businesses do look at these two factors. The problem is this came out of the advertising world years gone by, way before the internet, when people's lifestyles were quite linear in the sense that people would reach life stages at quite similar points with regards to age. But now when the internet came along, it enabled so much freedom and flexibility over lifestyle choices, which means that now we've got two people who might seem radically different but they are the same age. And you might get the reverse too, where you get two people who have got very similar lifestyles, but they're maybe a decade apart. The problem with segmenting people by demographics is that we potentially lose all of that richness. And the segments assume that everybody within that demographic have the same culture, have the same situation, have the same context. It doesn't acknowledge the diversity of people's lifestyles within that segment. One of the big things that we found in human values is that age was not an indicator of the stage of life that people were at. So when we looked at especially younger audiences, 16 to 34, we found that about 10 different stages of life, roughly. And we found that age just was not a factor that indicated what stage of life somebody was at. And we hear the thoughts of Katja Bago, who is a principal researcher and data scientist in Nesta's Technology Futures Lab. What I find very interesting about it is a bit that idea that maybe we've we've started to think in a really weird way about people as a demographic, right? This is a bit of a tangent, but if we're thinking about the uh, US elections a bit, and you always see the poll numbers, and it's like, oh, well, if you say this exact thing that will work with that monolith of, I don't know, people under 30 that live in a city that are like this, as if everyone's exactly the same. And I think turning that around and coming at it, well, there is probably a type to people's values, perspective or what they care about, as you said, based on their age, but actually understanding that and understanding groups of people, I think is quite interesting in the algorithmic age where we're more and more sort of breaking people down into clearly understood patterns, right? Or patterns of behavior, basically, if you advertise. I I think maybe personalization and this sort of 
dividing people up in this way has gotten a little bit of a bad rap because of online advertising. Well, it's actually probably one of the most interesting things we can do, right? Sort of with the digital ways so of to reimagine it in that way and thinking about it from a values point of view. I think it's really interesting. Um, yeah, and I wonder if that could be uh, even sort of a different way about thinking about the internet wholesale or how we discover new information or new bits because uh, I know you, you hear, I, I say it a lot myself, you're saying like, oh, we should not optimize for profit, but for something else. But what that actually looks like, like what does it mean to optimize for something else that does need to be made tangible and concrete. And I think this could be uh, a very interesting way of doing that potentially or to actually, what does it mean if you want to I don't know, present a ranking algorithm, you just look something up in the search engine, gives you 10 results, how do you then order it or how do you personalize those results according to something else that's not just likelihood of clicking. Yancy Strickler is an author and entrepreneur. He is the co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, also an author of This Could Be Our Future, a manifesto for a more generous world. He's also the creator of a framework called Bentoism. You know, the question is, how do we go a level deeper? And and I, I saw this tweet uh, a few weeks ago, someone saying, you know, in 2005, the extent of the left uh, in America was like, Noam Chomsky and Michael Moore and like National Public Radio. And now the left is like thousands of people and tons of like micro communities and there's so much depth. And this is a true everywhere, right? And so the internet has been this great deepening and fragmenting and all these kinds of things. But like the degree to which we sort of like a, a surface simple pocket understanding of something was possible and accepted you know, 12 years ago, 15 years ago, but now we are all like so much more knowledgeable in a way that I feel like we even have a hard time being aware of. There is a philosophical view that this could enable a different way of thinking and a more ethical way of thinking. It's, it's one of those things where once it starts to, to gain momentum, everyone will be thinking, what did we used to think? Why have we always thought this way? And I, I mean, you see this, I mean, if you look at some of the TV shows that were on in the 70s, and you look at the way that women, yeah, people of colour were treated, the roles that they got, and, you know, the things that were said, you just kind of like, you just kind of cringe. And I think that there could be something where, in the same way, the idea of kind of lumping people together, as you pointed out, by age and by gender, just seems so crude that we would just look back and laugh. We've looked at values during COVID. We find that some key themes really did come out. So we found that people were valuing all these things around self-development, connecting with friends and family and looking after ourselves. So essentially being safe and well, connecting with friends, all these growing, achieving goals. We see people really taking that individualistic view, which I really have this optimistic view that we can all come together and to solve some of these bigger bigger things because it's all well and good that people want to work on themselves but there needs to be this more sort of collective action it's also interesting when you look at cross-cultural variations and you've got kind of more collectivist cultures 
who value things like belonging much more than what a Western culture value connecting. And this idea that in this Western society, we have this very individualistic view and, and it is it does come out of this sort of capitalistic nature. It comes out of consumerism, all of these things. And we see this in our data and we see in the way that people view themselves first. So I think having a framework that does put people first, but doing it in a really ethical way so that people can fulfil their values. And then when every everybody's sort of healthy and fulfilled they can have more impact in the group and they're those sort of higher level needs and values like having an impact. Pauline Dresler is an independent creator and researcher and works for the Netherlands Film Festival. She's also part of the steering committee of publicspaces.net. Pauline reflects on her new role. Well it was very often just a small group of people worried about this this general online problem and since COVID-19 suddenly it's not just us it, it, it's a much larger awareness and I think that's that's really a good thing because it's it's more on the agenda of governments of of uh, businesses uh, and organizations public organizations but also cultural organizations but at the same time it also makes me kind of feel like I'm suddenly in a different role I, I don't have to scream anymore, like, watch out for Zoom. You, there is a privacy issue here. It's now all around me. So I need to kind of re-evaluate my position in this field because the, the field has been changing. And that is because suddenly it's, it, the whole internet became such more vital for so many people. The human values framework, the Yanti's Bentoism, They're both really good ways to make people stop and think because one of the biggest things is that people don't really stop and think and reflect. It really takes something to make people stop in their tracks. Most people are just operating on the basis of what do I want now? How do I get that immediate gratification without any regard for the future? And we see this on a personal basis, on company basis. So having anything to make people just really, really consider and be mindful over what their intentions are and their intended impact is a good thing, I think. Yancy explains the origins of Bentoism and reflects on how it fits with the human values framework. But our belief that financial value was the only rational value was based on this even deeper assumption that I hadn't really thought about before, but that the only rational space to think about is now me that this individualistic, short-term oriented way of seeing the world that is especially prevalent in the West limits our perimeter uh, of self-interest in such a way that everything beyond what matters to me right this second is seen as irrational or emotional or less true somehow. And to me, that feels like not the truth of things, but more um, an expression of our limited vision at this moment. And so my book and then the, the, the structure I, I, I created called Bentoism is all based on this idea that there is an expansion of self-interest that is happening. It's an expansion of self-interest from the individual to a collective. I don't think it's the global collective. I think it's people that we feel emotionally tied to. And there's an expansion from now into the future and things like climate change, all sorts of the, the major mega problems we're facing now in the 21st century These are not individual problems, these are collective problems. And so, whereas the 20th century was about sort of 
solving the space of the individual. You know, we really, we really crushed what it is to be like the, the man or woman against the world. Like that was the iconic image of that entire century. I believe that this century is about collective problems and that we've just, the hyper-focus on individuality has produced, I think, a lot of great things. And, and I certainly like, I, I, you know, I believe in the individual. Um, but there is a need for a kind of post-individuality where we all appreciate how we are unique, but yet we see the, the greatest meaning and the, and the greatest potential in finding the ways that we are similar um, and in structuring a society more around that. So it, what it's made me feel is that um, everyone's doing the best they can with what they know. What we know is limited. Our ability to see more and more of our world takes, generally takes life experience, um, but maybe there are ways to accelerate that. And, and a lot of what the research in my book showed is that values are quite fluid. It's wonderful to chat. It's wonderful to be, you know, to have low stakes interactions. You know, I'm someone I like, when I lived in New York, talking with the guys in the deli was my favorite thing. Like I love having random conversations with people. It's so fun. And so like there is a version where the internet is that um, to a great degree. And it's true, people can get stuck there, seem to get stuck there. But, you know, I could also see an argument that maybe it's like, uh, maybe the internet lets us satisfy a little bit of that, but yet, you know, going deeper is always a click away. Like we, we, all, we always are just like a, a single interaction from being converted, yes, to being a, a jihadist or white nationalist or something, but also to being a better person, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of paths that are possible there. And really, I think kind of the values that appear in life, I mean, I think age is a lot of it, age and life experience. I mean, like, you know, family is a moment, um, you know, losing someone is a moment, like independence is a moment. These things, I think, sort of shift how you rank things. And, and so maybe like the internet is a bit of an accelerant of that. Or I feel the pain, of course, is like wanting attention, you know, feeling rejected or, uh, you know, just the highs that are too high or the lows that are too low that comes with the internet. And, you know, I'm grateful to have not had to go through that as a teenager. I think Mark also is indicating that run a business, which is very focused on human values, could be, a, you know, a, something that makes them very different from everyone else. And there's a solid feeling that this will be the future and once again we'll look back and we'll laugh at all those companies that used to spend all their time looking at their how much money they were worth you know compared to or how much tension they were grabbing compared to the actual value it brought to people's lives you know those companies will probably they'll have to shift if they don't shift then they they probably may die and this is a a nice step towards that human values works for the individual but could also work for companies and it's something that we would encourage companies to start taking seriously now it's clear to me that human values are at the center of any kind of research or frankly any kind of advocacy or product development that mozilla would would do in the future uh our whole foundation is you know to build a a to build an internet that is open and accessible to all that reflects positive human values. I mean, that's where I often think of us as similar to the BBC, uh, even though we're a nonprofit, not a, a public entity, 
is, you know, we think we, we're going to build a, a media environment that we all live in, uh, you know, more than 4 billion of us right now and increasingly, you know, closer to all of humanity, that, that media environment should be one that reflects human values and is humane, right, that feels nurturing to humans. It's pretty easy to keep Mozilla at the board level, at the staff level, even many of our closest supporters focused on the human value dimension because that's the, the, the reason we exist, right, is to build technology and kind of shape how the industry and the internet overall work in, in ways that reflect human values. And, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't exist to do anything other than that. The harder part isn't to, to kind of push the conversation internally towards human values. Uh, it's to be successful in the world, making those values real, right? To have you know, relevant consumer internet products like Firefox that reflect those values and have them be successful. Uh, because, you know, we obviously live in a world where shareholder value, I mean, shareholders are humans too, I, I guess, but, you know, shareholder value as opposed to value created broadly to all users and citizens is the decision-making factor for most organizations. It's not for us because we're a nonprofit. We don't have external shareholders. But those companies that are out there competing hard with shareholder value in mind with a ton of resources that, a ton more than, than either Mozilla or the BBC, you know, they're not always looking at the, the best interest of users as their first decision-making factor. So it's more when you're out in the marketplace, we're trying to make a browser, we're trying to make a smartphone, we're trying to make a, a different way of managing data, a different way the internet would work with human values. Sometimes the, the, the folks just focused on profit uh, will beat you out because they're the more aggressive competitors. I think the media environment really should be humane and reflect human values. So pushing this conversation forward, just internally, externally, and ways in which we can demonstrate that success isn't just a load of numbers. It isn't just eyeballs on screen, more time that people are watching, looking at whatever it is that you're delivering. One of the big things is that it will come down to changing the metrics because whilst the numbers are the most important measure right now, we need something to replace that, which is what we're working on. But to change the way we measure impact, it might be easier in places like Mozilla, BBC. I think it would be challenging in those more aggressive markets, but I don't think it's impossible. I do hope that we look back in time to come and, and think, gosh, what were we all doing? Why were we so obsessed with getting as many eyeballs and keeping people looking at their phones for as long as possible? Thank you for listening, and thanks to Alexandra Deschamps-Sansino, Catabago, David Jay, Pauline Dresler, Yancy Strickler and Mark Sermon for their contributions. This has been a podcast from the Human Values team at BBC Research and Development. For more information, please visit our website at www.bbc.co.uk/rd.